in advance of hearing the word this morning. Heavenly Father, um, I pray that that you be with me this morning and help me to be faithful uh, to your word. Help me to to uh, just clearly and and concisely and and uh, um, with just the utmost attention paid to to the the preaching of the gospel. Lord, help me to unpack the text today and help me to bring uh, bring your treasures before the folks who are here. Um, I pray for your grace and your mercy on me and. And Lord, I, I pray that, that folks who are here, who hear the word preached, they would uh, you know, be filled with your spirit, Lord, that they would, uh, they would know you through the preaching of the word, that they would hear, um, that they would, they would be in your presence today, Lord, that they would be filled with your spirit. Uh, in Christ's name I pray, amen. So, my uh, wife... <clears throat> came up with the coolest idea this morning or this year for Christmas um, for Christmas uh, uh, preparation because right now we're in Advent y'all are aware of that right like it is Advent and this is Advent is the four weeks building up to Christmas and um, when I was a kid my mom used to go and buy these Advent calendars and the Advent calendars, you'd open them every morning, and they would have a little chocolate in the shape of something Christmas-related. And, uh, um, oh, wow, stop that. <laughs> I'm trying, I can't. I, <laughs> um, and you're just going to keep it on, aren't you, jerk? Uh, I, <laughs> I have a disruptive teen wearing a mask in the audience at the moment, uh, and that is what that is. So this is not my fault, it's his fault. Anyway, so my wife came up with this cool idea that we get the kids advent calendars that are Lego advent calendars. And so um, each of the little doors, you open it up, and it's got a tiny little Lego thing, like a little figure or whatever, and they're all Star Wars related. And my kids are excited. And this has been this whole exciting thing. Every morning they get up and they, they open their advent calendar and they get their little Lego thing and build it. And they get little spaceships or whatever. And, and she didn't get me one, but I bought one on Facebook, which will be showing up later this week. Um, <laughs> so the first day, December 1st, um, at about, I was at 2.30 in the morning, we're, we're all asleep. And suddenly... My beloved son comes in and wakes up my wife to say, I can't sleep anymore. It's time to get out of bed. And my wife said, no, you need to go back to bed. And I think it was about 20 minutes later, he came back in and he said, mom, I just can't sleep anymore. And she said, no, go back to bed. And I actually got up myself at about 430 is when I usually try to get up a little earlier than that. Actually, I overslept, I suppose. Um, and my son is there in the middle of the floor putting together his little Lego, I think it was a Millennium Falcon, um, that he was so excited. And my wife said, you know what? I didn't know it, but the reason he started getting up at 2.30 and never went back to sleep is because he was so excited to get his first Lego spaceship. And I just want to point out, I did not think of that. 
Um, he was just so excited. And I remember being a kid, and, and we didn't do that for chocolate, but I remember on Christmas morning, you know, the first few years when my parents did Christmas gifts on Christmas morning, we got up insanely early, and my parents said, no, go back to sleep. And then I think the next year, they started shifting where we did gifts on Christmas Eve. Um, but the, the reason I'm talking about this is not like, like, did anybody do that when they were growing up, or has anybody experienced this with their children? You know, the go to sleep. You know, it's not time to be out of bed, but I'm so excited. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing Advent, and, and like, it is difficult to come up with Advent sermons. And <clears throat> I, I started reading this year, I'm reading a uh, series of devotions based on um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters from Prison, where he touches on Christmas in different letters. And, and it's got four different themes building up to it. And I've really been impressed by this. I've really, you know, gotten a lot out of it. And so I'm going to work through the themes that are presented in this book. And the first theme we're going to be talking about is waiting. And everybody loves waiting, right? And that was my son who just yelled no. <laughs> my son who got up at 2.30 in the morning to, to open a Lego door and, and drive his mom nuts. Um, Oh, she was up anyway, of course. Um, waiting, right? And, and as we approach Christmas, how many of y'all are excited to get there? How many of y'all are excited to get past it and get it over with? <laughs> Come, at least a couple of you. Um, if we look at this, this um, the Advent season, the season building up to Christmas, um, or the years building up to the birth of Christ in the scriptures, we come across um, a consistent theme, and that's like messianic expectation is a big $5 theological word for it, right? People were ready for the Messiah to come. They were ready for God to do something. Um, and, and a little background on this real quick. Um, we first start seeing the Messiah talked about in the prophets, right? Like the major prophets preceding the exile, right? So like before the exile, we get Isaiah who comes along and says, hey, God is going to send his man, his anointed one. And that's what Messiah means. It means anointed one. That's what Christ means, anointed one, right? Like one's a Hebrew word and the other's a Greek word. It's the same word. So Jesus Christ, Messiah is basically Jesus, you know, anointed one, anointed one. Um, but it is like they, we, they started talking about this expectation that God would send a man who would stand up and be his representative and fix stuff. And like from the moment the Jews went into exile, they were waiting on this guy to come and fix stuff. And there are a lot of conversations over the years amongst the rabbis as to who this Messiah person would be. And there are a lot of guesses and a lot of like ideas and, and some of them are nuts. And actually, every time a Messiah rose up amongst the people, until Jesus came along, these Messiahs would lead an armed rebellion, put on their armored helmets and their swords and shields, and they would go marching out and fight a holy war, trying to chase off the bad guys. And, like, it always went badly because the Romans were big and tough, and, I mean, it's like me trying to fight Mike Tyson, you know? I, I'm not going to win. You know, the Jews were not going to beat the Romans. Um, but... Over and over again, they were anticipating this. And, and so, like, as we start this up, we're going to actually look at Luke chapter 2. This is 25 and 26. Actually, we're going to go through 32. Um, this is the spot where uh, Mary and Joseph have brought Jesus 
to the temple for dedication. And they would have done the circumcision at that time, and they would have given, given them the name and done all this other stuff. There are all these ceremonies you're supposed to do, especially with a firstborn son. So they arrive at the temple in Jerusalem, and we pick up with Luke. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, why am I starting with this? Well, because there is so much excitement at this time that people are waiting on the Messiah. And this is one example of this. This guy, Simeon, is a prophet, and he's waiting around, and God has told him, hey, you're going to see the Messiah before you die. And he was, um, now you can take that either way, right? Like, hey, I get to see God's man, or like once I see God's man, my days are numbered. Um, but he is waiting at the temple and moved by the spirit. He went into the temple, into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you have now dismissed your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Um, Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because God has sent his man, his man sent by God specifically. And this Simeon fellow is waiting for him to show up. And when he shows up, he says, oh, my gosh, here he is. My job is done. Right. I mean, it's like waiting for Christmas. Um, these guys are looking at the taxation they're suffering under the Romans. They're looking at, like, like the Romans occasionally would inflict sort of pagan ideology onto the temple. And there was a lot of conflict related to that and riots and armed uprisings and everything else. People, they hated, the Jews hated the Romans. And they constantly planned out ways to fight against them or to drive them out or what have you. Like, they didn't see anything good about the situation. Um, and... Like They're like kids waiting for Christmas, right? They're excited. There's anticipation. There's energy related to it. Um, and we see that when Christ shows up at the temple the first time. Uh, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So Simeon comes along and he says, listen, not only is this God's anointed one, he is going to divide the nation. And like he's going to reveal who people really are. Like the Sanhedrin is going to oppose him and kill him because their hearts are wicked. And some people will turn and follow him because they're really looking for the Messiah. Now, part of what's tricky here is these people are looking for God to beat up the bad guys. Anybody in that spot right now, by the way, looking at the world around you and saying, God, why don't you stomp on the evil in the world and set things right my way? I mean, I... I don't even watch the news anymore because of that. Like, I'm, I'm in that spot. Um, but in reality, God was going to do things his way. And there's a whole element of trust, but people couldn't wait for that. They wanted what they wanted. They wanted it now. And they, God, where is your Messiah? God, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? There was also a prophet 
Anna, daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage um, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at the very moment she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So this woman is waiting like like Titus waiting with the Christmas box, you know, with the Christmas advent calendar, I want my thing, um, like, you know, like, like my kids will be on Christmas morning because we don't get to sleep in in our house because my wife is in charge um, of Christmas only. Um, the, the reality is, like, these people are, they're excited. Well, why are they so excited? Well, um, our, our topic today is waiting. Because they've been waiting forever. Nobody likes waiting. And actually in our culture, waiting is even less okay, right? We have been spoiled to death. We want things now. I pull up to the drive-thru and there's more than four cars in front of me. Guess what? I'm not eating there. I'll eat at Arby's before I wait for four car lengths, right? I'm not doing it. Like, we, we want everything instantly. We don't wait for things at all. It's on streaming, it's on streaming now, or it's not okay. The internet is instant, or it's not okay. I want to buy things, and I want them to show up at my house yesterday. We are spoiled. And I'm not knocking on you all, it's the reality. But there's a truth to be found in this, and that is that waiting on God um, is a part of what grows us in holiness. It's a part of what we remember in this season. Like, Like, we got three weeks till Christmas, and actually Jeremy's going to be stuck doing a late Christmas sermon. Sorry, um, because we should have started last week, because uh, Advent, the first week of Advent was last week. But our first theme this week is going to be this, this waiting. Um, well, what were they waiting for? What was so good? Uh, we're going to jump into Isaiah. Man, I love Isaiah. Isaiah is the Christmas central um, prophet. Like, he talks about the coming Messiah so much and in such obvious terms, and it is just exciting. What has God promised them? What did they get added to their Christmas list that year for the first Christmas, right? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We're going to hit pause there. The Lord has anointed me. That sounds familiar, right? Because Messiah means anointed one. And that's a reference to this practice Um, when prophets would pick a king or when they would pick somebody who would be God's representative, they would anoint them. And that means you would go to them with oil and you would put the oil on their head and you would say you are anointed and like dedicated to God's service. And you see like um, when David and Saul are warring because Saul is trying to kill David and David's basically in hiding. David has an opportunity to kill Saul. And instead of killing Saul, he lets him go because he says Saul is God's anointed. Like Samuel anointed Saul, he is king, he is God's anointed, I can't touch that guy. Because whoever God picks, even if they go bad, they're the man, right? In this particular instance, we see where like this anointed one, this, this, this Messiah, um, this Christ, is being sent by God to preach good news to the poor. And actually, if you look at the first big sermon that... Christ preaches um, in in the New Testament, like in Matthew, right? We have the Sermon on the Mount, and he gets up, and one of the first things he says is, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Um, He begins with this 
preaching the good news to the poor. And whether we like it or not, like we're a rich culture, right? And some of you might say, nope, I'm not, I'm not rich. I'm definitely poor. But I don't know anybody who doesn't have a TV or running water. Anybody not have running water? Um, most people own a car or two. Like most of the world doesn't have clean water. I mean, we live in a rich culture. Um, but we are poor when all things are said and done because, um, because what makes real wealth in the grand scheme of things is the presence of Christ in our lives. It is knowledge and intimacy with God, like what makes us really wealthy. Because at the end of the day, my TV is going to wear out and break. At the end of the day, my car will break down and disappear, you know, more quickly if it's a Chevy. But, you know, even, you know, it will not last forever. I, I don't even care. I just think it's funny to pick up Mark. Um, we are poor before God because, we, because we're fallen, because we're sinners, because we have no place to, to ask for blessing or to ask for anything because we rebel against God constantly. And so to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for all who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garments of praise instead of the spirit of despair. Now we're going to hit pause here because, I mean, I could pick this apart in little bits and pieces. But we're going to look at the major themes, okay? The first movement in this prophecy is the Messiah is coming. He's going to preach good news to the poor and everyone who mourns. Anybody mourned before? Is there anything worse in the world than mourning? Like this emptiness and this brokenness that comes from something wonderful or someone wonderful being pulled out of your life? Like, like you know, those who mourn, those who are you know, in the ashes of life, those who are grieving, those who are broken, those who are joyless, those who are, are, are broken, um, those who despair, they're going to be given the opposite. They're going to be given praise. They're going to be given comfort. They're going to be given blessing. God is going to be in their presence. He is going to fix all this stuff. Now, in context, Isaiah is talking about 70 years before the entire nation is sacked by Babylon. And the temple is destroyed, and lots and lots of people are killed, and everybody is dragged away in chains to be slaves in Babylon. Um, the whole country is about to be destroyed. And this prophecy begins with God is going to make it right, He's going to fix it all. Now, there's a couple of levels to this. Obviously, this is at least partially talking about Israel. Um, in a larger sense, this is talking about us. Um, we were meant to be God's children. We were created to have a relationship with him. But because of sin, because of brokenness, because of death, because the creation is, is screwed up like really, really thoroughly, we have mourning. Because of, of sin in the world, we worship things that aren't God. We try to fill that emptiness inside ourselves with, with food or status or being the best looking guy in the room or or what have you, like, and all of that stuff leads to emptiness. And instead, the Messiah is coming to make it right, and to make it right in the biggest and best way possible. If you promise me all of that on Christmas morning, I guarantee you I'm going to be up at about 12.01, right? Every moment of mourning, every broken thing, every lost 
you know, family member, every, every sin, every moment of hunger in the world, I'm going to be up at 12.01 and I'm going to be waiting. I'm not even going to go to sleep. I'm going to stay up and wait because I know God is going to set the world right. Every horrible thing that ever was is going to be made right. And that's why the Jews are so excited because the Messiah is going to come and he's going to fix it all. This is especially exciting to a group of folks who are under the boot of Roman authority, right? Like, we've been beaten up. We're being taxed. People are, you know, are, are coming and living in our homes if they feel like it. If Roman soldiers show up and they want something that belongs to you, they more or less can take it. Because what are you going to do about it? But it will all be made right. And so they're excited. They know the Messiah is coming. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And you're going to hit pause right there. That's kind of cool. Anybody ever see an oak tree? Big, impressive, the whole nine yards. And actually, on its own, it's kind of a cool metaphor. In context of the rest of the book, we're going to come back to this text here real quick. This is Isaiah 1, where the book begins. And Isaiah is basically saying, Y'all are screwed up now. Like, God is mad, and he is coming, and you are in for it. Like, repent, make it right, or God's wrath is going to be on you. And in chapter 1, when he's announcing that, Israel, you guys have sinned too much, and God is going to come squish you. Um, This is chapter 1. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken. And those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will, come, will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. And so we begin Isaiah where Isaiah says, hey, you guys are going to be like dead trees and your leaves are going to turn brown and you're going to dry out and everything you do in life is basically going to be like a lit match next to the dead tree. You are in trouble. And then we come to the end where the Messiah shows up and the Messiah preaches the good news to the poor. He comforts those who are mourning and then he makes it so that his people are called oaks of righteousness a planting for the, of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And basically what he's saying is, hey, guys, you're going to go from this place where you're broken, where you're dried out, where everything is wrong and screwed up and empty, and God is going to make you like a, like a live tree. He's going to make you this beautiful, enormous, strong thing. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Now, for those in exile are thinking, oh, yeah, the ancient ruins, the places long devastated, that's basically like our whole country back there. They will renew the ruined cities um, that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of your God. And there's a lot going on there. He says, listen, I'm going to restore your nation. I'm going to fix all the stuff that got wrecked in this previous war. In the immediate context, of course, this is talking about Israel being restored after the exile. In the context of our lives, 
This is talking about the sin and the brokenness and the garbage that has happened as a result of the world being a screwed up place and us doing wicked things and, you know, everything not working the way it's supposed to be. And God will come and he will restore it and he will make it right. He'll wipe away every tear. He'll, he'll comfort every bit of brokenness. He will make it right. And so much so that, like, there'll be wealth surrounding them. And other nations will come and take care of your animals and do all the hard work for you. Because you will be raised up and you will be called a nation of priests. Pause here. So there's a whole lot of weight to this. And I really want to touch on it, but I don't want to get lost in it. So if I start getting lost in it, like, wave your arms so I'll move on. Um, a nation of priests is what God promises Israel they will be at Sinai. They stood at Sinai. They're there. They get the Ten Commandments. They get the Mosaic Covenant and all this. And God says, y'all are my people, and you will be a nation of priests. And the whole point was for them to be people who knew God and told other people about who God is. That was the whole point. And guess how it worked out? It just didn't. (laughs) And what happens during the exile is... All of these folks who are in exile, all these Jewish people, they start looking and they say, you know what, maybe that's what we were supposed to do and maybe that's the way we screwed up. So let's follow all the priest laws. And so like when you read about the Pharisees and all the crazy nonsense people were doing every day, you had to like wash your hands in a certain way and you had to only handle food in certain ways. And, you know, the guy walking down the road on his way to serve in the temple sees the beat up man in the road and goes all the way to the other side so he doesn't get unclean. That's like them trying to follow the priest rules. They're saying, we'll pretend that we're priests, and then God will treat us like priests. And, of course, the problem is it just didn't work. Um, This idea that you will be called priests of the Lord is something that the New Testament talks about. Because in Christ, we are purified by his blood, and we are made his servants. We're made the people who share the gospel with the world. We are made into the people who carry around the sacrifice of Christ everywhere we go. We are his representatives, a holy priesthood, um, a holy people, a royal priesthood. That's from Peter. Um, And so this is predicting Christ. Um, Little sidetrack there. Um, But for the ancient Jews, this idea that, hey, God will make everything right and will be these things instead of just pretending to be them is exciting. Right, And they want it, and they want it yesterday. Um, and so they're sitting around waiting, like, God, when is the Messiah coming? When is the Messiah coming? And they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And you know what? They're waiting in an awful situation because everything is broken. There's almost nothing worse than waiting uncomfortable. Right? My truck broke down. Ford. <laughs> My truck broke down. My super old, beat-up farm truck broke down. Well, I was coming back from Great Falls with a dryer. Um, I was doing the Lord's work, delivering a dryer to the parsonage. Uh, and my truck broke down right outside of Carter, and I sat there. And it was cold. And so I'm sitting there with a not-running truck, and I called my insurance company, and they say, oh, well, we'll work on this tow truck thing. But because cell phone coverage isn't great, I got disconnected. And the guy apparently thought, oh, well, he got disconnected. Oh, you must not need a tow truck. And so he... Didn't send it. And I sat there for about five hours. And it started raining and then it started snowing while I'm sitting in my pickup truck, freezing. And I actually took my coat and put it over the dryer because I thought, that's the Lord's dryer. I need to protect it. And I sat there in the cold, shivering and waiting on a tow truck that 
wasn't coming. <laughs> and finally, I called again, and they said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, we didn't send it. And, well, I really want that tow truck. Can you please help me here? And eventually it did get sent, and the guy who was the tow truck driver called me. He's like, hey, I'm in a meeting right now. It'll be two hours before I can even leave. And so I sat there in the cold, in the dark. I saw a huge deer that I never saw while I was hunting. I don't know why that is, but I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And every car that came around the corner with headlights that looked like giant truck lights, I thought, is that my tow truck? And it wasn't my tow truck. For a really long time, I sat and I waited, and I was uncomfortable. And I'm here to tell you, waiting when you're uncomfortable is worse, right? It's ten times worse. And the Jewish people are waiting, and they're uncomfortable, and they are miserable, and they are waiting, and they are waiting, and they become kids like, like kids on Christmas. Lord, when is your conquering Messiah going to come and kill all the Romans and save us? And the trick is he wasn't going to come and kill all the Romans, and they got all confused, and they didn't do the right thing in the end. But we're not talking about that today. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will receive your inheritance. And so you will inherit double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. What the heck is he talking about? Just that you'll be super rich? Actually... That double portion thing is a reference to inheritance laws. And you all are all excited about inheritance laws, I know. I can see you on the edge of your seats. Firstborn sons were considered to be extra important and extra loved and extra special. Inheritance that went to the firstborn son was double. So they would divide everything up, and then the firstborn son would get two shares, and everybody else would get what was left. And so the firstborn son holds, uh, except for the daughters who got nothing. Um, the <laughs> I didn't make it up. Um, the firstborn son, they're like, hey, you're going to go from being disgraced, from being humiliated, from being cast aside, and you're going to be brought in as the firstborn, as the loved ones. And they're excited about that. Kids on Christmas. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. That everlasting covenant is the new covenant. That's where we're at now. We are living under the new covenant. Christ died for our sins. We follow Christ. We are covered by his blood. We are forgiven. We're made brand new. We don't have to earn salvation. We don't have to be perfect. And in fact, all of the good stuff God expects of us that we can't do because we're awful Right? Like, I try to do the right thing, and I get better at doing the wrong thing. Like, I, I, I find new and creative ways to be wicked. Um, I'm, God will do it for me. Um, that new covenant that we live under is the greatest gift that God could give us. Um, their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the people. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. And how are we a people the Lord has blessed? We've been saved from our own wickedness, from our own sin, from our own brokenness. And not only that, God makes it possible for us to be good. I really wish that was everything in life, like an instant. We'll still struggle with sin until we die, but like God makes it possible. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. 
as a bridegroom adores his head, adorns his head, and like a priest, or like a priest, and a bride adorns herself with jewels. Um, so what's he saying there? All right, somebody who's about to get married, uh, TJ. Has your soon-to-be wife gone dress shopping yet? Was it a production? You're not allowed to know. That's the important thing. Don't get involved until the wedding day. You have nothing to say. Every lady in the room, when you got prepared to get married, was wedding dress selection a small part of the ordeal? How many dresses did you try on? More than one? My wife tried on one because she looks beautiful in everything. But most women have to, they, they try on 75 different dresses and they have to, there's a whole TV show, say yes to the dress, right? Like, and there's catalogs and a whole business and all kinds of craziness. What? I, somebody just said something rude to me. It was probably that guy in the night helmet. Um, <laughs> when the Messiah comes, he will adorn his people like a bride on her wedding day. He'll dress them, dress them up as gorgeous and as beautiful and as clean and as pure as can possibly be. We, we look at this in the New Testament over and over again. The church is the bride of Christ, right? And the church is adorned in, like, Christ cleans the church for his behalf. Like, he presents her to himself, like, spotless and without blemish. Um, most brides don't walk down the aisle wearing a dress with a giant coffee stain in front, right? Because then they'd be grooms. Um, come on, that was awesome. Uh, <laughs> or barbecue sauce on the side. No, you put that thing on about two minutes before you walk up front and you take it off like, and change into something you can spill onto before you eat, right? Or you put a tablecloth over here or something. Um, but the Messiah is promised. Like this anointed one is promised to his people and he's going to make them perfect and he's going to make them beautiful and he's going to adorn them with like wealth, wealthy stuff and riches and everything else and they are going to be amazing. Now, you might read this and say, oh, Jesus is going to make me rich. No. <laughs> there are guys who will stand up and tell you, if you follow Jesus, you'll be wealthy. I am here to tell you that is not true. It hasn't worked out for me yet. Um, but the second half of this verse sort of interprets it. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. Um, one of my favorite parts of living in Big Sandy is going for walks in the spring. There is only one kind of plant that seems to be able to survive in our climate, other than weeds, which are amazing in their ability to survive, but lilac bushes, right? You ever go walking around town and, like, you'll just catch that little whiff of lilac, and it's like, whoa, you know, and you stop and you got to look for it. It's one of my favorite smells in the world. It reminds me of college and dating my wife and, and all kinds of other great stuff, and and righteousness and praise will spring up like this. That adornment he's talking about is righteousness and praise. Like we will be blessed with so much that we'll break out into praising God. We will find it so natural to follow Christ that being righteous, being, being right before him will be just, it'll be like flowers growing in a field. It'll happen naturally. 
like the gift that God gives us and what God promises his people. And like as we talk about waiting for Christmas, which it seems like it'll never come, um, is this, like God is promising, he's promising to comfort those who mourn. He's promising to fix those who are broken. He's promising to wipe away tears. He's promising to make us right. He's promising to restore us, to make us like firstborn sons, to take away our sins and clean us and, and adopt us as his firstborn and favorite. He's, he's promising that he will make everything right again. We won't have to earn it. We won't have to work for it. It will be a gift that will show up in Christ. As we wait, in ancient Israel, they waited for the coming Messiah, right? They waited for God to come and set the world right. And they waited eagerly, like my son waiting for Legos on December 1st. Um, Brothers and sisters, as we wait, we wait for something different. We're waiting for God to come back and set it right, right? We're waiting for, um, for the second coming. Um, as we prepare for Christmas, as we wait on the Messiah to come again, as we wait on the holiday to come, like what I want to encourage you today is to recognize that part of following God is sometimes waiting, right? It's waiting on God to act. God isn't slow, as some would understand slowness, but he's patient. I got two quotes I want to read you from, uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, these are written, so those of you guys who don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor. Um, and in advance of World War II, he was a very well-respected and kind of renowned theologian and writer. Um, when the Nazis came, he spoke out very openly against them. The day that Hitler took power, he preached a sermon on the radio, um, like encouraging the people to kind of resist this. And before he was finished, they shut his microphone off. Um, but he still spoke out against them. He fled to the United States because he basically was going to go to jail, and he lived there for a little while, and he said, you know what? I cannot be a man who follows Jesus and not be with my people in this time. And he went back to Germany and openly preached against Hitler. Eventually, he was arrested and put in a concentration camp, and 10 days before that camp was liberated, he was hung. Um... And he wrote all of these letters and all of these papers. And um, the stuff I was reading from him this week is from letters that he wrote to his fiancée, right? And he would get to see her for an hour a month. So once a month, he would get to see her face-to-face and spend time with her. And he's writing all of these letters to her, and they are unbelievable, right? You ever read something and you think, man, I wish I could be more like that guy? Um, This particular excerpt, he's talking about a friend of his who had died. He says, today is Remembrance Sunday. Um, Will you have a memorial for B. Reimer? Um, It would be nice, but difficult. Then Advent comes with all happy memories for us. It was you who really opened up to me the world of music making that we have carried on during these weeks of Advent. Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this and that or the other, things that really are of no consequence, the door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. What he's saying is, listen, 
Advent, waiting on the Messiah. Like in their instance, waiting on the Messiah to come in the first place and to restore his people. And for us, waiting on the Messiah to come and set the world right. That's like sitting in a prison cell. You can't open it yourself, right? You can praise God and worship in the time being. You can enjoy what you have in the moment. You can do this or that, but really, at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to happen eventually is somebody's going to open it up from the outside. God will open the door and show up himself, right? We don't get to do that. We don't get to speed it up. We don't get to advance it. We have to trust. Waiting is not a fun thing. Um, But one of the things that we celebrate at Advent is God keeps his promises. And even though we wait, there's going to be a Christmas morning. The other thing I wanted to read for you is from another letter also from, his, from Bonhoeffer to his fiancée. Um, and he says, I think we're going to have an exceptionally good Christmas. Written in a concentration camp. I think we're going to have an exceptionally good Christmas. The very fact that every outward circumstance precludes our making provision for it will show whether we can be content with what is truly essential. So he's saying... The fact that everything around us is ripped off and there's no way for us to do anything will show if we can be happy with what really matters. I used to be very fond of thinking up and buying presents. But now that we have nothing to give, the gift God gave us in the birth of Christ will seem all the more glorious. The emptier our hands, the better we understand what Luther meant by his dying words. We're beggars. It's true. The poorer our quarters, the more clearly we perceive that our hearts should be with Christ's home on earth. What's he saying? He's saying, as we approach Christmas, the less we have, the emptier our hands, the more screwed up everything is, the more we can know if we're okay with Christ. And that's it. You know, and we're living in a time that is not concentration camps, right? You know, we have an election fight going on, but nobody's shooting each other yet, right? Um, there's evil in the world around us. People are hungry. Businesses are struggling. Like, like people are dying of COVID or, or whatever. Like people are angry all the time, and it just sort of seems like a desperate, worrisome time. And what Bonhoeffer said sitting in that prison camp, was that when everything is broken, when everything is empty, when everything seems hopeless, we discover whether or not we can be content with Christ, whether or not Jesus is enough. And so Christ is enough, and it shows us what we really wait for, what really matters. Um, This is the first Sunday of the month. On the first Sunday of the month, we do communion. Um, We have to do it a little differently. I don't know if I have ushers.